Good morning. Our reading today will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with a sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Alyssa. Thanks, Sammy, for leading us. Open up your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 26 and 27. If you have a child um, that you want to send to Kid City, now would be the time. They're going to have some fun back there, and they're going to get taught the Bible in a way that they understand. Hope everybody's doing good this morning. I'm excited to be with you, and uh, I love gathering with the church and uh, just talking about what God's Word says. And and uh, many of you in here have some kind of church background, some kind of church experience, and maybe you're here and you have not gone to church in a while, or maybe your church is different than this one, and, and you might be thinking, I don't know about this here today. I mean, look at the preacher. You know, he's not in a suit, which sometimes I wear a suit, sometimes I don't. Uh, you know, the music, a little more contemporary, or it's a little different. I'm not sure I quite understand it, but do you know that the beautiful thing about a moment like this, the beautiful thing about a day like today is that God Almighty can speak to your heart and he can do something supernatural in you. He can. Do you believe it? I believe it, and I believe that this morning he's going to. And so the way we're going to get after that, the way we're going to do that work of asking God to work in our hearts is we're going to thrust our minds up against God's word, and we're going to ask God to speak to us. And so if you need a Bible, raise your hand, because we actually have Bibles in the back, and I'll even tell you what page it's on. Raise your hand if you need one. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, which in the Bible you'll be handed out is on page 831, okay? Great. I'm in a series called One Week to Change the World, and what I've done for the past five weeks is I've taken each of the last five and now six days of Jesus' life prior to the resurrection, and I've talked about each of them on a, on a Sunday prior to this one. So today, we are on day, uh, on Friday, the Friday of the last week of Jesus' life. And of course, next Sunday is what? It's Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. It's Resurrection Sunday. But We can't really fully appreciate Resurrection Day until we begin to understand and feel the weight and the significance of the Friday. 
It's hard, frankly, to begin a sermon like this in a way that I normally like to, which is to try to tell you something funny or interesting or really appealing, because what happens on Friday is quite intense. I felt some of the intensity and the effects of what's going on in our world that's related to the reason that Friday happened. This morning when I awakened and I read that in Egypt just this morning, there were some bombs in churches and somewhere in the neighborhood of 37 people are dead, Christians gathering to worship God because of what Jesus has done. And I begin to feel the weight of it a little bit more this morning. It's a sobering moment in history. It is quite arguably, not arguably, it is the most sobering moment in history, the Friday, the last day of Jesus' life before the resurrection. And the main idea I'm going to go at today is I begin to teach you parts of chapter 26 and chapter 27, and I don't have time to tell you everything that's there, so I'd encourage you to read it on your own, but I'll take you through the story. But the main idea and the thing that I want you to really understand, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, or if you're going to think about something later, or if you lose attention really quickly, then just write this down and think about this over and over and over, and eventually the sermon will be over, okay? Um, Here's the idea. At the cross, Jesus took your place. At the cross, Jesus took your place. Now, some of you are new to this church, and you might not be sure whether or not you can say amen when you like something that's being said. Go for it. I love it. So at the cross, Jesus took your place. In the days up to the cross, a lot has happened. We've talked about these things. On Sunday, which is Palm Sunday... We talked about about five weeks ago. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He was heralded as a king. He had many people around him anticipating his takeover of power in Jerusalem. But the days in between Sunday and Thursday were filled with Jesus rebuking the religious leaders, which is not something somebody would do to rally confidence among the people and then set up his earthly kingdom. He offended the religious establishment in Jerusalem, is what Jesus did in Jerusalem just leading up to the cross. So the crowd around Jesus, the one that heralded him as a king, were declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna, rescue us, O God, rescue us, O God, began to disappear. They began to disperse. There was just a small handful left of them as Thursday came. Jesus met with them in a last meal. Sammy preached on this last week. We read in Matthew 26, 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus began to be alone. I wanted you to know that at the cross, Jesus took your place, and he had to do it alone. No one wanted to join Jesus at the cross because it means rejection and suffering and death. In fact, one of Jesus' closest followers had to reject him. His name was Judas. Raise your hand if you remember the Bible character named Judas. Judas is talked about in chapter 47, this moment where he's betraying Jesus. It says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, this is after the transfiguration, the time of prayer with Jesus and a few of his disciples in the garden, Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs with the chief priests and elders of the people. So Jesus is outside the, the city praying. Judas, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, betrays him, brings people that are going to arrest Jesus. 
Now the betrayer, verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come to do. Jesus knew he would be betrayed by Judas. In fact, he'd predicted it just the night before, just earlier that night, whenever he was eating with the disciples at the Lord's Supper. So these This guard came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. For this sum of money, Judas agreed to bear witness against Jesus, claiming he was something other than what he was, claiming he had done something other than what he'd actually done. Jesus took your place at the cross. And he did it knowing that you would betray him at times and I would betray him at times just like Judas. So Jesus has been arrested. It's Thursday night. These religious leaders that Jesus has angered by calling them out. You know, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What he should have done is is kind of become allies with the religious leaders because they were very influential in the city of Jerusalem, lots of people there. But instead what Jesus does is he calls them out and says that what you're doing not only dishonors people, but it dishonors God, and the religious leaders did not like it. And so they got Judas to betray Jesus. They sent, found out where he was and arrested Jesus. On the night when he was arrested, Thursday night, he was brought before Caiaphas. He was a high priest. And there were other religious leaders in the community. So he's brought before the high priest, which is a religious leader in the Jewish community. Now, one thing you ought to know about Jerusalem at this time and the Jews is that Jerusalem uh, and the Jewish people in Jerusalem kind of took care of their own business, but they were actually under the authority of the Romans. And the Romans allowed the Jews to take care of governing their own people and dealing with their own problems. The only, one of the only things that they could not do, would not be allowed to do by the Romans, was to execute somebody because of a crime that deserved death. Well, Caiaphas is one of the leaders, the high priest of the religious Jews. Jesus is brought before him. And the way that the Jews did it was that they had to uh, bring an accusation and it had to be uh, witnessed or affirmed by two other people. And so Caiaphas has Jesus, and he is looking for an accusation and witnesses. And uh, the, the, the Scripture says in verse, chapter 26, verse 60, uh, or that they found none. It was difficult for people to come up with an accusation against Jesus. One reason for that is Jesus was perfect. Jesus never did anything he should not have done. Jesus never sinned. This is one reason that when Jesus took your place on the cross, it's different than what it would be like if just another person died on your behalf. I mean, I love my children. I've got four of them. One just turned 13. Pray for me. And, you know, I, I love them. I would die on their behalf. I, would, I really would. If somebody were going to try to hurt them, I would try to defend them, even if it meant my own death. And if you're not a parent, that might sound like a little dramatic to you. But if you are a parent, you're like, you, you get it, you know. But me dying on my child's behalf would not be a, a, a payment for their sin because I'm not perfect. Well, Jesus has been accused in this moment. Finally, they found a witness, and the witness says, 
Jesus has been saying, this is what they're accusing Jesus of, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And for Jesus to say something like that, it was, was very offensive to Jewish people because the temple of God represented God. It was a place for people to meet with God. It was a sacred, it was a holy place, and it was a treasonous act for somebody to make uh, such a claim that they could tear down the physical temple. And maybe even it deserved capital punishment. So Jesus is brought before these people. He's arrested, he's accused. And this claim that he has said he could tear down the temple, there's more here, but essentially what it is saying is that he believed himself to be God. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, you have now heard his blasphemy. Jesus, by speaking these words, was identifying himself as the divine. The high priest understood this to be blasphemous. It's an offense against God, claiming to be God. What is your judgment, the high priest says in verse 66. The religious leader says he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. So there is something like six trials that Jesus goes through between Thursday night and Friday when he's crucified. And the claim that eventually led to the murder of Jesus, the accusation that they took serious enough to justify this execution was that Jesus claimed to be God. I want you to know that at the cross, Jesus took your place. He claimed to be God, and his claim is true. Therefore, he is justified in this claim. But the remarkable thing about Jesus and the idea that he took your place is this, is that he took your place knowing that you and I would claim to be God's. You know what I mean? You know how we claim to be God? We take charge of our own lives. We're unwilling to allow God's word to shape us, inform us. Some of you are here and you think you are a God. You are unwilling to submit to God as revealed in the Bible. And so you are essentially claiming to be God, to know more than God, to know better than God. This is the prevailing mindset of our day. It's secular humanistic thinking, which is we can set our own morality. We can set our own rules because God doesn't matter or he doesn't exist. Jesus took your place and took my place in spite of knowing that we would in fact claim to be God. He claimed to be God and was justified in it. This activity of behaving like we're gods is what results in sin. In fact, it is a picture of the earliest sin talked about in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, essentially trying to take the place of God. It broke a relationship between man and God. 
or what God has done by becoming flesh in the form of a man by the name of Jesus, and this is the good news of the Bible, is he is taking the place of those that would claim to be God and it not be true. The problem we're trying to, with trying to be God is that we're imperfect and we cannot see everything and we make mistakes. I mean, some of you are like, I don't need God in my life. I'm not going to submit to him. Or maybe this is how God works for you. It's like a compartment of your life. So you have, you know, your social life, your work life, your play life, and then you have your kind of like, you try to check off the box that is church every now and then. That, that's, not, that's not what it means to submit your whole life to God Almighty. And the reason that you're in the mess, some of you that you're in, is because you're a really terrible God. I don't know about you, but there's every once in a while where I try to creep over and start taking, taking charge of my own life, and it just fails me. Some of you are miserable on the inside, which is why you have to drink excessively to feel better about yourself. I'm not trying to be mean to you, but the most loving thing I can do in this moment is speak the truth to you. Jesus claimed to be God, and it's true. We claim to be God, and it's a lie. And knowing that, Jesus took our place, man. We deserve to die for our own sin, but Jesus chose to take our place. So the word began to spread that Jesus was in trouble. His popularity had been replaced by painful rejection. Even his closest disciple, Peter, rejected him publicly three times in the final hours on that Thursday night. On the next morning, the Jewish religious leaders who had arrested Jesus found him guilty of blasphemy, brought him before the Roman governor named Pilate. Why? Remember a while ago when I said that in this uh, community that the Jews could not execute a man uh, for his crime. So they had to take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate was in town. He didn't live there normally. He was from Caesarea. He was in town because of the Passover. The population was really high, so he came in to try to keep order among the Jews. It had gone from something like 100,000 people in the city to 500,000 people because of this Passover celebration party that was going on that happens every year for the Jews. Pilate, he governed Judea. And it was a larger region than Jerusalem, but he's very concerned about Jerusalem. So he had heard maybe about Jesus at this point. And um, we read in chapter 27, verse 1, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And one thing that happens, it's an important theme in this narrative, this part of the narrative, is that um, Jesus is strangely silent for the most part. I mean, I've read a passage already where he admits the night before, when they ask him if he's the king of the Jews, he says, you've said it so. But for the most part, before Pilate, he's silent. This is strange to Pilate because Jesus was to come to his own defense. But what's happening in this passage, I want you to know, it's not just haphazard. It's not just a bad night for the Jews. It's not just they're, they're grouchy and they're tired of Jesus and they want to get rid of him. No, what's happening in this moment is a fulfillment of prophecies that were made hundreds of years before this moment. And Jesus, the God-man, 
is silent because he knows that he has come to take your place. And the reason that he doesn't call a legion of angels to defend him, which he could have done, is because he loves you. He loves you. I mentioned already I've got a few kids, and I I tell my children every night, I love you, but you know, I don't love you perfectly because I'm imperfect. You know, Daddy sometimes raises his voice too much. Sometimes I'm impatient. Sometimes I don't listen well enough. Sometimes I subject you to lots of sports center, and I know that's like a sin to you. You know, I'm not a perfect man. You know, I tell him that. But you know who is perfect? Jesus, and his love for you is perfect. He loves you. Jesus took your place. Can you hear this this morning? Because he loves you. In his death on the cross, his taking of your place for sin, dying for sin, is the greatest act of love in history. Is this why this is such a sobering, serious moment? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took your place, not because you're good enough or smart enough. He took your place because he loves you. And God gets a whole lot of glory when he rescues sinners who are not good enough and not smart enough. Jesus took your place. Some of you have church backgrounds that make you feel like you've got to do something to earn God's love. I want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You cannot do anything to earn God's love. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus died knowing that you would never be good enough to earn his love, but he did it anyway. Why? Because God loves you and he gets a lot of glory when he rescues people that don't deserve his love. As Jesus was standing before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, yes. Pilate has a little bit of a problem on his hands because the scriptures seem to reveal that Pilate does not actually think that Jesus has done anything deserving of death, but he's also got to keep order in Jerusalem, and it's a very tense situation. I mean, he's responsible for his actions before God. He's he, a little bit later in the story, washes his hands of it, saying, I'm not responsible, but he is, in fact, responsible. It's all a part of God's plan. But it's a tense situation for him. He has made it quite clear that he doesn't think Jesus has done anything deserving of death, but he also has to keep these religious leaders from, from rioting. His concern in this moment is not for Jesus. His concern is for the relative peace in the city. Jesus is just another man, a little bit of an annoyance to him, an inconvenience for sure. In fact, Pilate even attempted to pass the trial over to Herod, another leader in the Jewish community, um, because he knew that Jesus was innocent of these accusations. But the Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus to die, and Jesus had given them enough trouble. They get tired of being called out by Jesus for their religion being on the outside, but them being empty on the inside. This is the real problem, right? You have people who are very religious, who can wear the religious garb, but on the inside, their hearts are far from God. I want you to know that this morning, right where you are, God is not impressed or distracted by your external religiosity. 
You know what he cares about? Your heart. He cares about what's going on in your heart. And the manifestation of that for these religious leaders in this time that Jesus is rebuking him is that they're about status. They're neglecting the poor. They're taking advantage of people. They're ignoring the marginalized, including women and children. And Jesus has a problem with this, and he calls them out on it, and they're offended by it. And so what they decide to do is try to accuse Jesus of claiming to be God, which Jesus acknowledged he was, in fact, God. And to them, it was enough of a blasphemous claim that he deserved death for it. And all of this is happening as a part of God's plan. Jesus has caused them trouble, and the Jewish leaders are ready to get rid of him. So they beg Pilate, crucify him. Pilate asks, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Let him be crucified, they begin to scream. What evil has he done? And they don't even answer. They just chant again, let him be crucified. So eventually Pilate relented and handed Jesus over to be crucified. It is Friday. It is time for Jesus to die. Crucifixion. Inhabitants of the Roman Empire, especially in places like Jewish Palestine, saw crucifixion as the cruelest, most painful, and most degrading form of common criminal execution. But truthfully, Jesus was not the only person in history to be crucified. I could describe to you what actually happens during the crucifixion and is brutal. It is gross. It is heartbreaking. But the crucifixion is not what makes his death so breathtaking. What ought to shock us is that the crucifixion happened to a man who was completely innocent. The greatest injustice in history that was, in fact, all a part of God's plan. Jesus was the only person in history to live a perfect, sinless life. This is why we worship him. This is why we lift him up. This is why I say earlier that the reason we breathe the Bible, the written word of God, is because it reveals the living word of God, Jesus, is because when you see Jesus, you see God, and you ought to know the Bible reveals Jesus having lived a perfect, sinless life. He's crucified as an innocent man. Every other person, including you and including me, deserves death for sin, not Jesus. But it is Friday, and he has come to die. Matthew tells us that Jesus was stripped naked. He was beaten. In mocking accusation, they put a crown made of thorny weeds on his head while saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and struck him repeatedly, and then they made him stumble out of the city to a place called Golgotha, and there he was laid upon a wooden beam. His feet were nailed into the cross. His hands were nailed into the cross. Then the cross was stood on end with his beaten, bloody, brutalized body hanging to die.
Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This was a period of the day that wasn't supposed to be dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's debate among scholars as to actually what he meant by this, but what we do know is that in this moment, as he shouldered the weight of responsibility for the sin of all those that would turn in faith, repent of sin, for all of history, there was something about it that felt so heavy that it was as if God the Father had turned away from him. Eventually, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was dead. At the cross, Jesus took your place. He did it alone. He did it knowing that you and I would reject him. He did it knowing that the very people he would die for would would operate and live at times as if they were in fact God. The cross, Jesus took your place because he loves you. This is the good news of the Bible. This is the message that has to sit really powerfully in our hearts for us to fully appreciate the resurrection. God loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die so that you could have your sin forgiven and so that you could be at peace with God. This is the gospel. How do you feel in this moment? How are you doing, some of you, at being your own God? Can you believe that Jesus loves you so much that he took your place? You see, someday you'll stand before God, as will I, and we'll give an account for our lives. And on that day, what God will do when he looks at us, he won't look and say, well, how are you compared to other people? You're a pretty good person. He won't even look at you and ask how often you attended church or read your Bible. What he'll do is he'll look at you and see if your sin has been erased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the way that you get your sin forgiven is you repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you of it. You place your faith in Jesus. And once you do that, that's what makes you a Christian a Christ follower. That is what the Bible describes as being born again. And whenever you cross over that line of faith, on the other side, in a relationship with God, as a righteous child of God, then you read your Bible to more clearly see who is. Then you are compelled to pray and talk to him as your father. 
Where are you? Have you accepted Jesus as the one who took your place? Because if you stand before God and you've not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then when you stand before God, he'll see you and he'll see your sin. And it's the righteous thing for God to do as a just holy God to punish you for your sin. And you will go for eternity into a place called hell. Today's the day. What will you do? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might now no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for you. Will you accept it? Jesus took your place. Two things I would say in response, and I will bring this to a close, is let him Let him take your place. Let him be God of your life. And you say, well, Russell, you don't know how bad I am or what's going on in my private life. You don't know where I was Friday night or Saturday night or what I did. You know what? I don't know. And I do care, and you are welcome to share it with me if it helps you. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that God knows, and in spite of knowing, he took your place. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. And you think you're here for a whole variety of reasons. You think you're here only because you want to support somebody dedicating their child, which is great and wonderful, and we love you. And even if you are not connecting with this message, I'll hug you on the way out. It's cool. But for some of you, God is saying to you, I have you here for this reason. You're trying to play God, but you're a terrible God. Let me be God of your life. And for all of us, for those of you that have crossed over the line of faith, what is your response? Live for him. Don't just say, Jesus took my place. Oh, great. I can't wait till Easter. But just say, just say, okay, God, now you've taken my place. My sin has been erased. Now, how can I live for you? What do you want me to do? How can I share with others your love? How can I tell other people about this amazing message that at the cross Jesus took our place? How will you respond today? Would you bow your head so we can think on and pray about these things? Right there where you are, today's the day for some of you. Don't. Don't let religion confuse you in this moment. Just simply have you repented of your sin, which is ask God to forgive you of your sin. Acknowledge it before him and place your faith in Jesus Christ who took your place. Have you done it? If not, do it today. You say, well, how do I do it? Just tell God what's on your heart. You could say something like, God, forgive me for my sin. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I give you my life. And then once you cross over that line of faith, you get to begin seeing the Bible in a new way and you get to participate in the church family in a new way and learn about how wonderful it is to be a child of the King. There's a lot of freedom when you let Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of your heart. A lot of joy. Still, others of you are here and you have already crossed over the line of faith at some point, but you've not been living for him. You've been trying to play God of your own life. 
You've got something going on that's gotten you off course. Today's the day. Just, just know that, that God is as gracious and merciful as he was the day you first became a follower of Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so there's no condemnation in this place. Just accept his love. And so let's think on these things and pray about these things.